So I hope everybody is well. Okay, anyway, it seems nice to see you guys and nice to see the folks haven't been in a while, so it's welcome to the visitors and good to see the faces of the faithful. I hope everyone is uh, ready. Vic sort of stopped me outside and said, please keep it to an hour. But I thought I'd be reasonable and keep it to about 50. So it's always nice to come together to celebrate the table and to come together to to remember what the Lord did for us and continue to do for us in our in our lives and in our journeys and our walks with Him. And I just pray that every time we take of the, of the cup and of the bread that we remember the Lord Jesus Christ and how faithful He's been to us. We've been spending time in Revelation, as I'm sure you know by now, and we've covered the church of Ephesus, we did two uh, months ago rather, that was looking at a loveless church, a church that had lost the love for Jesus Christ. And so their works were, were way more evident than anything else. Then we looked at Sardis. I think Ian preached on Sardis. He gave us a good message on, on the works that weren't presented perfect before God. And so last week Pete also gave us a message on Smyrna and explained to us that they were going to be the persecuted church. In other words, they were going to go through the furnace, so to speak. But today we get to Pergamos. If I say Pergamum, don't think I'm speaking of a different church. Sometimes Pergamos or Pergamum comes out at the same place. Just in case you, you come to me afterwards and say, you know, Jean, what's wrong with you? There's nothing wrong. Um, but this is a church that was involved in a lot of compromise. And I really am going to drive the point home of compromise today. If we look at our relationships, in our relationships it's good to compromise. So, for example, if you get a packet of biltong for a present or as a present, you really have to go out of your comfort zone to share with your wife or your kids. <laughs> and it's similar for, well, in my house at least, when Kelly disappears for a few minutes and I hear a rustling of papers, I know she's in the kitchen enjoying chocolate, but there's no compromise there. But you know where I'm coming from, and I just want to piggyback off of Steve, uh, Pete's introduction rather last week on George Ford and the rugby analogy that he used. Peter Steff's mission was to mark George Ford and it, you could almost see like a tattoo on his forehead saying this is property of Peter Steff the talk. Because he just really, he went out to set, what Rossi had done and said, he went out and lived that out. And he, the same thing happened with Eben Itzabeth and Dwayne Vermeulen. Apparently in a post-match interview with John Mitchell, one of the coaches for England, they said to him, you know, what happened in the, in the pre-match warm-up? And he said, well, we got out into the field and Evan and Dwayne were just staring at us and smiling at us. And we knew we were going to have problems. <laughs> and so they were set up not to compromise. They had their roles. Rossi said, don't compromise. You tackle. You, you, at the breakdowns, you do what you have to do. And so it is with the Church of Pergamos. Unfortunately, they were in a compromised situation. And as we know, compromise has been coming for many, for many years, thousands of years. We can look at it in the wilderness. There was compromise. We'll also look at a few of the, the late theologians that have had quotes that have said things about compromise. So the late Derek Prince, who was a great theologian, he says the following. He says, The sin of compromise often goes unrecognized. About two years ago, while praying, I had a mental picture of the interior of a typical church building with rows of pews, a platform, a pulpit, a piano, and so on. But the whole building was permeated with some kind of fog. The outlines of the objects could be discerned, but nothing was sharply defined. 
While I was wondering what the fog represented, God gave me one clear word. Compromise. A.W. Tozer, true obedience is the refusal to compromise in any regard our relationship with God, regardless of the consequences. And lastly, Adrian Rogers, he says it's better to die with conviction than to live with compromise. So please stand with me as we read together through Revelation 12, verses, Revelation 2, rather, verses 12 to 17. So as you know, I, I enjoy the responsive reading. So what you'll do is, we'll turn it around today, you can read from the even-numbered verses, and I'll read from the odd-numbered verses. Okay, you start. <coughs> I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name, and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives. Father, we just thank you so much for your word. Lord, as we look at conviction, we look at compromise, please speak to our hearts. Let us think about what happened in Pergamos. Open our eyes, please, Lord, to the truth that is in Christ Jesus our Savior. Amen. Amen. Thank you. That was very good. Thanks, brother. So if you have your, have your Bibles, please open to Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. We're going to unpack these verses. I just want you to remember that today's title is called The Overcomer Despises Compromise. The Overcomer Despises Compromise. And as we saw, the Church of Pergamos, as well as the other six churches, all have eight points. That is sort of like an outline to, to, to each structure. So there's a destination. Pergamos is a description of Christ, which you'll find back in Revelation chapter 1. There's a commendation from every single, or to every single church rather, and there's also a rebuke. After the rebuke is an exhortation to change, and there's a consequence if there's no change. An exhortation to listen, and lastly in Revelation 21 and 22, we can see that there's promise to those who are overcomers. Just for Kenny to show you, there will be a few slides of Asia Minor, just for you to remember where Pergamus is, or Pergamum, and the other churches. And it's very important before you remember that Paul writes in Romans 15, verse 4, For whatever things were written before were written for our learning. That we through the patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. 
That's really, really important. That's how we learn through the, through the books and the revelation that God has given us about His Word. So Revelation chapter 2, verse 12, And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. That brings us to number point number one. I've got a four-point outline. You can look at it. You can. Um, I'll, I'll put it up on the website as well. It's that the biblical Christian overcomes without compromise. The biblical Christian overcomes without compromise. Peter established last week who the angel is. Um, it's very difficult. Very there are very very many different views on who the angel is. But it's a messenger. It's someone that's sent out. It's someone to look over that church. And Pergamos, as we know, I don't know how many of you know a lot about Pergamos. I've taken a few points. It's in modern-day Bergama, which is in Turkey. And in this time when Jesus gave this revelation to John before and after, the God of healing was in this area. This God of healing, his name was Asclepius. And this is where the center of medical treatments took place. There were also two major dynasties that had their seats here, the Attilus and the Eumenes dynasties. But most importantly, this is where the invention and manufacture of parchment originated. Pergamos was situated on a hill, and therefore you could have seen why they were compromised. They must have felt quite impenetrable, and it's evident from the rebuke of Jesus that Pergamos was in a lot of trouble. There's an image I think of Pergamos, you can see it's, it's quite beautiful. But this is what was happening. And so, after that, Jesus says, these things has he who holds, or has, the sharp, two-edged sword. Now as you know, a sharp two-edged sword on either side of the blade there's a sharpness and so I'm going to split that in two and look at the judgment sword of the Lord and the word of the Lord. I think it really does have a double meaning and I'll show you now why. The judgment sword obviously involves the beamer seat which is the judgment for Christians at the time when Jesus will judge. There's the sheep and goat judgment and there's also in Revelation 20 or 21 it is the great white throne judgment, Revelation 20. And so, if you look at Revelation 1.16, Jesus says, well, uh, John writes, he had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. So you can see that this is prevalent throughout Scripture, and it's about judgment. And I believe, no pun intended, there's an underlying and sharp allusion to the judgment of God here, and the, God, the Word of God, which encapsulates all truth. What I found really interesting is you look at the text, it says Jesus has the sharp two-edged sword. It doesn't say that he might have it, or he probably has it. It says that he has it, and I found this extremely interesting because with the other worldviews that we look at, you can go to the Himalayas, you can go and look at the remains, or at least where they buried uh, Buddha, for example. You can go look at Medina, you can go look where they buried Muhammad. Yet we serve a Lord who is not in his tomb, he is risen. Amen? Amen. And so you can see that Jesus is truth. Every part of Him is truth. His word is truth. And so this sword of truth, the sword of judgment, is in Jesus' name. It's in everything that He is. And this sword will divide. As you know, swords do divide. And as Jesus said, my word will divide. From right and wrong, firstly. We know truth through the scriptures. We know right and wrong through the morality, the moral compass that God has placed in our hearts. We also know that the sword will divide the sheep and the goats. The sword will divide the truth from the almost truth. And I think that's really important to remember that as new Christians, when you come into the faith, make sure you've got uh, a mentor or someone that can help you that is established in his walk with the Lord because 
this, the, the truths are so subtly twisted by Satan that you could be put off the path very, very easily. Jesus said, narrow is the way to heaven and wide is the road to destruction. And that's so true if we look at what the world is telling us with regards to the scriptures, with regards to, as Steve mentioned, the inerrancy and the infallibility of scriptures. The world is telling us a complete different thing. If we look at judicial systems, in South Africa, in the courtroom, you have an advocate and a lawyer on either side, and the judge deliberates on the outcome. And look at um, America, the same sort of setup, except that there's a jury, there's people that are randomly selected to, to judge and to deliberate over this. But there's, these judgments are fleeting because the person might be able to sort of uh, create a relationship with that murderer and even feel and have compassion for them. Although justice has to be done, you might actually say, well, not guilty, or whatever the case may be. Whereas that is completely contrary to what the judgment of the Lord is. The, ju the judgment of the Lord, no one can escape. Therefore, Jesus is the truth. He is the sword. He is the judgment sword. John 14, 6, everyone knows the scripture, at least most of us, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. John 1, 17, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And lastly, just to show you a little bit of truth, there's thousands of scriptures, 1 Corinthians 5, 8, therefore let us keep the feast not with old leaven, nor the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And so when Jesus is saying this, he has the sharp two-edged sword. That's a rapid sort of judgment that Jesus is talking about. Before you know it, judgment would have happened. And it's a picture of a figurative judgment, and I believe two, a literal judgment. So the question is, does a two-edged sword have a double meaning? Does it mean Jesus is judgment, and you will come with judgment, and does it mean His Word is part of that? I do believe so, and I'll make my case now. But judgment, remember, comes through the Word. And through that, we will see different characteristics that Jesus possesses. So the Word of the Lord, remember, that's why I labeled it the biblical Christian overcomes without compromise. How will you and I know judgment? How will we be able to stand in front of the Lord one day? is through the Word of the Lord. He's given us the full and final revelation, 66 books, inerrant, infallible, untouchable. It's tried to be disproven over hundreds of years, thousands of years actually, and people are still back until today. And this is where the compromise problem comes in for Pergamos. They probably had Jewish people within their fellowship as well that have con that converted to Christianity, and so they knew the Old Testament. They knew probably New Testament because by this time all the letters would have been circulated to Pergamos and all the other churches. But what we must remember is that Hebrews 4.12 explains to us beautifully on the Word of the Lord. For the Word of God is living and powerful. And the ESV also renders it alive and active. Sharper than any two-edged sword. There's the sword again. Piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow. And is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And the sword in this context, remember when Malchus was in the uh, garden, Peter was there, they came to arrest Jesus, and his ear was cut off by Peter, same type of sword was used there, the same definition of sword, and it shows you that it was a precision cut, and actually he had to, Jesus put Malchus's ear back on his head and told Peter just to, just to calm down a little bit. But that's the beautiful thing of a sword. No matter what your, your smallest measurement is, that sword will dissect to that measurement. That's what the word does. The word, as you can see, it dissects to joints, to marrow, to soul, to spirit. It goes in past everything. And that's how we will know the word of the Lord comes. And we know through judgment 
but it will come through that. So the biblical Christian overcomes without compromise. In keeping with point 1, Revelation 2 verse 13, I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Now I know many of us will read this and think that is extremely weird. I found it weird why Satan's throne was there. But firstly, Jesus' characteristics come through here. We know his works. Sorry, he knows our works. Why? Because he's omnipotent, omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent. So he's all-knowledgeable, all-powerful, and ever-present. So whether you are running a business, whether you're employed by someone, your, your occupation is X, Jesus knows it. So never for one moment think, hey man, I just slipped one past Jesus there. Shoot, you'll never see that. Unfortunately, and fortunately, you will see that. He knows where we dwell. Every single movement you and I have, he knows exactly that. But Satan's throne was in Pergamos. As you can see, he had a foothold in Pergamos and in the church. And the reason why is because this is where the heightened or the cult of emperor worship was. It was main in Pergamos. And so Satan had his stronghold here. He was stationed there. And he was trying to destroy, as he is in every church today as well, trying to destroy the church with those believers. If you hold fast to my name, Jesus says, and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Now, so you can see the church still, Satan is stationed there. Satan's throne is in this area. Yet they held fast to the name of Jesus. They didn't deny the faith that was handed down to them by the apostles and that was taught to them by the apostles. And I found that very, very interesting. It's very intriguing how they, how could you compromise, yet you still held fast the things that the Lord Jesus gave you. Antipas was apparently the first guy that was martyred um, for not worshipping Roman gods in that area, in, in, in Pergamos. And so that's why Jesus is saying, you were faithful, even though that happened. And say, for example, one of us got martyred today. Would this church still stay together? Would we still say that's faith? We have the faith that Jesus gave us. We know that we can hold fast to Jesus' name. And what happened is, is that, or as you can see, what I'll show you is that martyrdom, people have, that have been martyrs over the, over the years will have a special place in heaven. Revelation 6, verse 9 to 11. So those that have been martyred, and those that will be martyred to the great tribulation, and every other day when there is martyrdom. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on earth. Then a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer, until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren, who would be killed as they were, same sort of death, martyrdom, was completed. And therefore, where martyrdom is, that's where Satan is. Wherever there's martyrdom, that's where Satan is. So no matter what you do, just as an exhortation on the side, do not deny your faith in Jesus Christ. If you have a relationship with Him today, if you know Him, if you've been saved by Him, never ever deny that faith in Jesus. And I'll show you why. ISIS, a couple of years ago, took 21 Egyptian Christians, they called Coptic Christians, onto a beach, and these guys told them two things, well, one thing, and... and they said to them, denounce your faith or, or renounce your faith in Jesus Christ. And these guys refused to. So in, in, the, in the sense of who, who ISIS represents, 
If you do denounce your faith, they say it's fine, you'll live, but if you don't, they'll kill you. And so what happened is, these guys were beheaded, but just before they were beheaded, they actually sang praises and hymns to the Lord Jesus Christ. They would not move from who the Lord had made them, and had molded them, because they gave their lives to the Lord Jesus Christ. And as a stat, I've looked at, really, I've looked at a lot of websites and a lot of info, but there's an average of about 100 million people that have been martyred, Christians, that have been martyred for their faith in the church age. Think of that stat quickly. That works out since AD 33 when Jesus resurrected to now that's an average of 50,000 martyrs per year. And over the last 10 to 15 years it has risen to about 90,000 a year. So there where Satan dwells, that's where martyrdom is. And therefore the, the problem was is that the compromise came in from the church. The compromise was coming from within. As you remember in 1 John 2, many antichrists will arise within the fellowship. That is exactly what was happening here. And again, Jesus reiterates that Satan is among that church. Just remember that. Jesus himself is pointing that out. So if the biblical Christian overcomes without compromise, why? Because we'll know the Word. We'll know the Lord. We'll know that everything He's given to us through the Word will mold us and make us who He wants us to be. Then surely, point number two, the overcomer seeks the washing of the Word. I'll explain that now. Revelation 2.14 But I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel. Ephesians 5 verse 25 and 26 The first verse doesn't have much to do with the message but I'm just going to read it anyway because it's good for us to remember as men. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. Which of our, how many of our husbands are here today? How many of us that are husbands are doing that? Remember that the Lord Jesus gave His life for the church. Are you daily as a husband laying your, your life down for your wife? Because we're quick to use the submissive um, scriptures. But we have to be the man like Jesus Christ was. Verse 26, that He might sanctify, this is the most beautiful thing, that He might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. So despite all the commendations by the Lord, the same thing knows their works, he knows where they dwell, there is always a rebuke. And this church has a rebuke. They're holding to the doctrine of Balaam. Now the doctrine of Balaam involves false teaching. I don't know if you remember the church in Ephesus was the opposite. They hated the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which we'll cover now. But the doctrine of Balaam, I got this off of um, God Questions. If anyone ever has questions about Christianity, go to GodQuestions.org. They can really help you. Um, it really helps me. And so, there they were seeking falsehood for financial gain. So the, the explanation that they give is that the doctrine of Balaam is the attitude that one can be fully cooperative with the world and still serve God. Completely contradictory to Scripture, isn't it? We cannot serve the world and we cannot serve God at the same time. We cannot serve mammon and serve God. In practical terms, the teaching or doctrine of Balaam is the view that Christians can or even should compromise their convictions for the sake of popularity, money, sexual gratification, or personal gain. But that brother and sister that has been born by the Spirit of God, it's the, it's the easiest scripture, it's the most easy to remember, 1 Peter 1.16 is the way that God calls us to live, and it's this, Be holy, for I am holy. Leonard Ravenhill, he says, Without holiness, no one shall see the Lord. Jesus didn't die to save us from hell. That's a fringe benefit. 
He died to get total occupation of us, to be holy in speech, in actions, in everything. We want to give God our lousy sins. What do you think He does with them? He wants your will. He wants that career of yours. He wants that selfish heart not to live in selfishness. And that was the problem at Pergamos. There was compromise. There was compromise within the body. There was selfishness. There was all these things. And so the stumbling block that was cast before them was the same as when Israel was camped out in the plains of Moab. You can go look at it in Numbers 22 to 25. And remember that every time Balaam was supposed to curse the Israelites, he could only bless them because that's what the Lord gave him to speak. And it's it's amazing that they didn't know their scriptures either because in Genesis 12, God says to Abraham, I'll bless those who bless you and I'll curse those who curse you. Remember that these things that were going on in the church was A, they were sacrificing things to idols, they were eating things sorry, that were sacrificed to idols, and B, they were committing sexual immorality. And how evident is that in the church today as well? Another rebuke comes from the Lord in Revelation 2.15. He says, Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which think I hate. Now, as I said, in Ephesus they hated the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, but they lost their first love. And if you can remember, the Nicolaitans were the similar, they, they were almost the same as those who were holding to the doctrine of Balaam. They were teaching the error of Balaam. They were casting a stumbling block, not before Israel now, but obviously before the Church of God. And they were holding the liberty of eating things, sacrifice to idols, as well as committing fornication. You can see that the Nicolaitans were in among that church too. There's a very dangerous teaching today in the, in, in the church that, that really speaks about this, and it's that there's hyper-grace. There's grace over everything. Live as you want, the Lord Jesus will forgive you. And unfortunately, um, I'm not the, the best Bible scholar in the world, but I have read my Bible, and I know that that is completely contrary to what Scripture says. You cannot live just for grace. You cannot continue living in your sin. Because what does Paul say in Romans 6? Romans 6, 1 and 2, Paul says, How shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. So should we continue in that sin that grace may abound? Paul says, certainly not. Why? Because those that have died to sin, those that have given their lives to Jesus Christ, should no longer live in that sin. Another view of the Nicolaitans is that those uh, people were exercising power over the laity. The Proverbs 6 verse 16 to 19, it just, I know I used it when we looked at the church of Ephesus, but the scripture is absolutely amazing. There are six things the Lord hates, the Lord hates, sorry, seven that are detestable to Him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a person who stirs up conflict in the community. So yeah, the Nicolaitans had haughty eyes. They were committing fornication, they were committing sexual immorality. The Church of Pergamos was doing the exact same. They had lying tongues, their hands were shedding innocent blood. Who was that innocent blood? It was Antipas. Antipas was the first martyr then. And so when your heart devises wicked schemes, as the scripture says, then your feet are so quick to rush to evil. A false witness who pours out lies and a person who stirs up conflict in the community. And that's why Satan had a foothold in Pergamos. That's why compromising will have us in a problem when we let Satan in to our lives. 
The beautiful thing about the Lord Jesus Christ is that every time there is a rebuke, there's an exhortation to, to change. Revelation 2.16, Jesus says, Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. And you can see that the word says, I'll fight against them. And I was thinking about it, and, and repentance involves, in this instance, in the instance of whenever four is as an issue, to repent as a congregation, to repent as individuals, and as the church of God. Because Jesus says, what, what he's saying is that if you repent, someone around you, in this case the doctrine of Balaam, those people holding to that, will come to repentance too. And you wouldn't have to come with the judgment sword. So the overcomer, point number three, overcomes through the washing of the word, this person has a repentant heart. So the overcomer through the washing of the word has a repentant heart. Similar to the hyper-grace movements, we've got many movements and many people that do not teach repentance either, which is extremely unfortunate. Just to go flat. Um, but repentance, remember, is to change one's mind or purpose. You have to change your mind about who you were and what the Lord Jesus had done for you and move in that direction. It's to have a contrite heart, to be remorseful and to return to God. So repentance, as I say, involves changing one's mind or purpose. And the Hebrew connotation of the same word is that word that means to remorse, be remorseful and return to the Lord your God. So repentance is an urgent appeal for instant change of attitude and conduct before it is too late. You can see here that Jesus isn't making a suggestion. He isn't saying, hey, brother, you know, if, if you feel like you want to repent, then please, you know, go for it. It's a command. He's saying, repent, otherwise I'll come quickly and fight against those with the sword of his mouth. With the judgment of the word, the most beautiful thing is that we have the word and we can grow and learn about the Lord Jesus through that. This is a sort of judgment, remember, and the truth comes out of Jesus' word. And it relates back to verse 12. You can see the sword, of the, the sword and the judgment goes back. It's, I'll give you three examples of repentance in the scriptures. Psalm 51, Steve read it earlier. Um, this is what David wrote to God to ask for forgiveness because he had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Many of us remember that story. They sent you right the Hittite onto the battle lines. And so David really messed up and he lost his firstborn son because of that. But he repented. He never ever committed that again, that adultery. And so he knew that he had to turn away from the Lord. The thief on the cross, I love using this example because everyone says, hey, I'll wait till my deathbed. You know, I'll wait till then till I accept Jesus Christ. All the best for that anyway, but what you can see is that Jesus was on earth for, or his ministry was three years. So this guy that was on the cross probably knew who Jesus Christ was. But when he was on that cross, when he was on that time of need, his eyes were opened to who the Lord is. And he said to the Lord with a repentant heart, Remember me when you are in paradise. Because he is God and he knew that Jesus was on the cross. Zacchaeus is another example. Jesus comes to Jericho and Zacchaeus wants to see him. He, had, he was uh, vertically challenged and so he had to climb up a tree to see the Lord Jesus. But what happened is he said he'll give everything he has to the poor, half of it, and you'll pay back fourfold anything that he has done wrong to, or, yeah, what he has done wrong to someone. And so, Jesus said, truly salvation has come to this house. And in my own life, and in your own life, how often have you repented? How often has the Holy Spirit 
poked us in the heart and the solar plexus and said, John, repent of that. To me it happens quite often. You know my testimony, you know what I was about, and there's a lot of things that still come up that the Holy Spirit wants me to get on my knees for and just praise the Lord and ask Him for forgiveness and tell Him and ask Him sorry, to change my heart. Bring my heart to a place where He can use Him. The overcomer through the washing of the Word has a repentant heart. Therefore, brothers and sisters, don't compromise. Don't let Satan have a foothold in your relationship with Jesus. Take out all those cobwebs, everything we say that the world is giving to us. Kick it out the window, it's irrelevant. The Lord Jesus is King and He is coming soon. The overcomer despises compromise, which brings us to our last point, and that is that he, he will eat of the hidden manna and share in Christ's reward. Verse 17 says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. My uh, notes have gone very dark here. <laughs> oh, yeah. The ears are used as a, as a, as a faculty of hearing is to perceive. And what Jesus is saying, and remember we spoke about it at Ephesus as well, is that all of us have ears. So Jesus isn't merely saying, well, if you might have an ear, listen. He's saying, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. One of the most beautiful scriptures is 1 John 5, verse 5. Who is he that overcometh the world? The guy or he that believe that Jesus is Son of God. It's one of the most amazing scriptures. And as you can see, there's examples of overcoming to the other churches we've dealt with Ephesus. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. This is to the overcomer. This is to the non-compromiser. To Sardis, he who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life. But I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. That's Jesus saying, you'll say, welcome, good and faithful servant. Father, this is Tony, or this is whoever. Smyrna, he who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. And so Pergamos, I will give him a white stone, Jesus carries on, and he says, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. So the manna, remember, Israel was fed with manna in the wilderness, day in and day out. And Jesus is fulfilling it and saying, I am the hidden manna. I am that manna, that bread of life, that fulfillment you'll have of me into eternity. And that is so amazing. A white stone was used as a token of acquittal in a legal case. And so a white stone represents a symbol of victory as well. For the Christian, it's a symbol of victory. It is clear that it is a reward given to the overcomer by the Lord in a personal manner. It's not just like we all just get in there and Jesus is a personal God, is a personal Savior. Contrary to every other worldview, there is only one personal Savior, and that is Jesus Christ. And He will give you a new name, an acceptance by God, and a title to glory. Revelation 21 and 22, spend some time in that if you ever want to see what promises there are to the overcomer. It's full of promises there, but some of them include a new heaven and a new earth. Not corruption. No sin, no death, no tears, no sorrow, no pain. Our bodies will be incorruptible, our bodies will be everlasting. William Croper, a mid-18th century hymnist and poet, writes the following. He says, I thirst, but not as once I did, the vain delights of earth to share. 
Thy wounds, Emmanuel, all forbid that I should seek my pleasure there. It was the sight of thy dear cross that weaned my heart from earthly things and taught me to esteem the dross, the mirth of fools and pomp of kings. Remember that the message today, the Church of Pergamos was a compromised church. They were doing whatever they felt like doing, and even though there might have been, let's say, ten believers within the fellowship, seven might have been born-again believers, but three were bringing in false teachings, false doctrine, and things like that. And it's very important to remember that we will overcome when we do not compromise. Don't compromise in the Word. Don't compromise. Don't let the world dictate you what you should understand out of the Bible. Ask the Lord to guide you in those scriptures. The biblical Christian overcomes without compromise. That overcomer seeks the washing of the Word, to be cleansed by the Word, to understand who the Lord Jesus is. And through that washing of the Word, the overcomer has a repentant heart. He goes on his knees before the Lord. He wants to be in the right, right, right relationship with the Lord. And after that, with a repentant heart, the overcomer will eat of the hidden manna and share in Christ the Lord. Pergamos should have despised compromise. They had the doctrines of Balaam, the errors of Balaam, the errors of Balak, the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, and therefore Satan had his foothold. But like many have gone before us, look at the martyrs that have gone before us, they never compromised one inch. They never ever said, I denounce Jesus Christ. They persevered through that. And remember that no Christian today, as we sit here, none of us are exempt from martyrdom. The Christian climate in South Africa is okay at the moment, but that could change at any time. Look at the Christians in the Middle East, the Far East, wherever you look, they are being martyred by the, by the minute, really. Are we compromising in our relationship with Jesus Christ? As I say, do not let the world dictate your belief system. The Bible talks of a time when people will not endure sound doctrine. You can go to 1 Timothy 3, 2 Timothy 3. These texts talk about the world and what will happen. And so, we are not to compromise because we will endure in sound doctrine. The encouragement is to endure in sound doctrine. Don't have your ears tickled and your conscience is seared, as, as Paul wrote. The overcomers will endure to the end when they hold to that. Brothers and sisters, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day our redemption draws near. And that's why as Christians, in John chapter 3, that's why it is important that you have to be born again by the Spirit of God. You have to get rid of that old person so that, that Jesus, the Holy Spirit, the Father can come and live in you and guide you and show you what He saved you for. We are Jesus' bride. We have that hope of Him coming soon. If you're part of the bride, praise the Lord. If you're not, or you're thinking, or you're one foot in, one foot out, let me encourage you that the gospel message is a message that saves. It's a message that brings salvation. Jesus died on the cross for each and every one of us, so we must remember what He went through at Calvary. If, we, if Jesus did not die, as Paul says, we all still own our sins. If He did not resurrect, the same. Let's wait and be eagerly expected to the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Right. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for what you wrote, what you gave to the scriptures, for the people to use, to write, their personalities. Whatever they went through, Lord, they, they trusted in you. And may we also, as a congregation, as people within Four Ways United, and to wherever, whichever parts, Lord, may we trust you. 
May we repent of our sin. May we come to you with our arms open to understand what you've done on that cross. The gospel message is the message that saves. Brings light to the world, Lord. You are light. May we not compromise in our walks. May we pick up all compromise and spend time in the Word. Lord, we thank you for everything. Blessed be your name, now and forevermore. In Jesus' name we pray.